Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Thanks everyone for coming and uh, we're going to be discussing The Killing Season which is quite an extraordinary book about quite an extraordinary series. Um, I read right in the beginning that it's the product of 100 research interviews, 55 on-camera interviews. Sarah, you started work on this series when a whole lot of other books had already been written, mm. when a lot of people had interviewed the main protagonists when there'd been countless articles. I mean, this was one of the most trawled over times in Australian political history. What did you want to achieve? Did you want to do the definitive historical account or did you want to do something sort of qualitatively different from what had been done before? I'm not sure whether the definitive account will ever appear. One of the things that I found so fascinating about this story, and I think it's why people keep coming back to it, is that it was unfinished. These two great stars of their generation cut off, really, in their prime, unfinished business. We, we didn't think we could find a definitive answer, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, but finding definitive answers and, and final truths in politics is very, very difficult. What we did know was, because of the peculiarly human dynamic going on here, that we would have, if we had Rudd and Gillard, and of course we wanted the rest of the cast of Labour characters as well. But if we had those two bristling as we knew they would on camera, that we would have an intensely different series, whatever else we did. Once we had secured them, which wasn't easy, we knew we had a series. We weren't searching for the truth as strong as Holy Writ. We wanted to know what they thought had happened. And I knew you could trust the audience, you can always trust the audience, that they will find a truth that they want to believe. If you lay out a, a, a number of different versions, the audience will divine the truth that they want. And you say, you're quite clear, you can't decide definitively who's telling the truth, whose version you should believe, which I sort of found interesting because I reported through this mm. entire period and a lot of journalists and authors who wrote about it did take sides, did clearly decide who they believed. But I always found myself believing uh, one or other of them at different points in the story more, depending on whether it was the bit of the story that sort of suited them better mm. to be truthful about. You're relying on those very subjective recollections, but you're scrutinising them objectively. So is that essentially what you're bringing to the task? Is that the main point? That, that is the main point. So, I mean, it depends on the event. So there are different, different events, some of them some of them produce bigger challenges. Of course, where there are fewer people in the room, it gets more difficult because at least you've got a chance with four people in the room. And that was a rule that we only talk to, we only interview people who are in the room. So no commentary, no off the record background sources of any kind to even really inform what we were doing. There was a little bit of that sort of information, but 
the vast majority of, of the story that we told was based on those people in the room. But when you have a situation like that famous scene in Kevin Rudd's office on the night of the challenge in 2010, sitting in chairs like these, except bright orange, I think Julie Gillard described them as, you've got John Faulkner in the room, but John Faulkner won't say what happened. He'd given his John Faulkner-like um, pledge that he was never going to speak, mm. never, never mountains mm. could fall, the walls of Jericho could tumble. And with John Faulkner, they probably would too. They probably would. <laughs> and and it, I said to Rudd, Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard, please release John Faulkner in a great gesture. And they, Julia Gillard said, he'll never, he'll never speak. But history demands, I said over and over. So in that case, you've got you know, one of the seminal moments of that period of government and really a seminal moment in Australian history. And yet, because John Faulkner remains mouth closed, you've still down to Kevin Rudd's recollection and Julia Gillard's recollection, but through their accounts and then the additional material from those people with whom they interacted when the meeting broke up, you come very close to a yeah, definitive truth. I was going to say, because you've got the people who they straight away spoke to, you know what they said, so you can kind of pretty much figure we get, out. We get very close, but you know, you, you raise an interesting point, because one of the things that I thought about when looking back over this material for the book, and I love this material, it's why it's so nice to talk to you about it, of course, because you were there, but just to revisit it is such a pleasure, is my astonishment at people's certainty. Now, you saw a lot of this up close. Mm. Many people read what you wrote, read the many articles written and books written by other people, but they had certainty about Rudd, about his character, who he was, what he did right, what he did wrong. Same thing about Gillard, strong views, for and against, but certainty. And when I would meet people, particularly in the early stages, they would say, I hope you're going to do X and Y, Rudd and the hairdryer, or whatever piece of superficiality people were obsessed with. And I was staggered at their certainty, because I was a journalist, I wasn't in the press gallery, but I'd observed it reasonably closely and analysed it from time to time. And I had very few certainties. That was really one of the things that we brought to it, was uncertainty, because of the nature, the, the elusive nature of truth in this dramatic story, we had to bring uncertainty to it. I've often wondered whether this story is so hard to pin down because it seemed to me to be sort of qualitatively different from previous leadership challenges in that it wasn't like a young Turk saying it's my turn and the old Turk saying, no, I'm still good at my job. It was two people who came to believe that the other's claim was utterly illegitimate mm. and that they sort of had a duty over and above themselves to either regain the leadership or stay in the leadership for the good of the party, for the greater good. Mm. It became you know, not just a fight to the death for ego reasons, but a fight to the death because each was so certain. And in those circumstances, when it's that emotional and that visceral, do you think it's possible that people just genuinely remember things differently? I think that's right. I think the vagaries of memory in this are everywhere. And that's one of the things that you, you come back to. Who am I to say that someone is um, certainly lying? Now, there's a few times when I'm pretty sure that that's going on, but a lot of the time, <laughs> a lot of the time, it, it comes down to the vagaries of memory. And you're right, the influence of their emotion on those memories. And something else had also happened, which is that both, if we're talking about the the, the, the twin peaks, the narratives of Kevin Rudd on one hand and Julia Gillard on the other, they had begun to shape them. They were already quite mm. substantial differences in what they were saying compared to what they had said even a year yeah. ago. Now, Rudd had said less than Gillard. Gillard had written her book, so she had already got her tent pegs out and she had staked out a narrative, I think a narrative that trapped her in a much too narrow cage, in my opinion. 
um, Rudd had said a great deal less, but they were shaping their own narratives. But that presence of those great tumbling emotions, I think, makes it very difficult to, to determine where even, even their own truthfulness lies, even in the darkest of their moments mm. in, their, in their private domain. So let's go back and sort of trace through the bits where we may or may not believe them. Do you feel like you really got to the bottom of that first 2010 leadership change, the one Anthony Albanese calls the original sin? Because I have always had the feeling that we must be missing something. It was such a surprise. There were senior members of Cabinet who had nothing, didn't know about it. It was so unlike anything I'd seen before. I keep thinking, there must be something I'm not getting here. Did you have that feeling? Throughout, and when, when we started, the only thing that I knew, back to this idea of this elusive notion of certainty, just about the only certainty I had was that everything flowed to that event and everything flowed from it. So it had to be the centre of the series. So it was the longest episode in the series. But going back, what, uh, what the series demanded, because it's a television drama, it demanded just that. It demanded drama in the storytelling. It demanded that we use the best material and that when the emotional moment has passed, you don't stay. You don't stay to continue to analyse it because television drama always tells you that you must go on to the next thing. And so what the book enables me to do is to go back and piece together those extra pieces of material. And the most important, I think, are around the challenge Mm. and putting together that, that endless question whether the challenge started with the Victorians, whether it started with New South Wales, when they came together, how they came together. And as you say, this unorthodox event where it starts from the periphery, it doesn't start with a candidate, it it starts without a candidate, it starts with people who have relatively, although powerful people in the party, have no great influence in federal politics. Mm. And all of those cabinet ministers sitting in the centre of power Oblivious. Even now, Chris Evans is one of the people who was a bit of a revelation to me going back over it. Um, Chris Evans, who at the time I had associated, you remember him, he was the senator from Western Australia, and I associated him very much with the, the, the event of the Oceanic Viking, the, the custom ship that took those uh, refugees to Indonesia, didn't get off the boat, created a crisis for the government. And I'd associated him perhaps too much with that, which was very critical of Rudd, and I missed the really important thing about Chris Evans, which is he was very fair. And I asked him um, about his observations of those grumpy senators having their meetings in their room complaining because they're not getting enough attention from Rudd and that he's awful. And he said, yes, well, nobody paid much attention because they were just wannabes. we didn't think they had any influence. And when I asked him, well, how is it that they came to have such a decisive influence removing a first-term prime minister only really weeks later after you first observed their, their huddled meetings, he said, I've really no idea. To this day, I don't know how it happened. And I think one of the lines that sticks in my head, that again, this is an area we didn't go to in the series because the drama ends on the night with Rudd being removed. You can't the next episode has to become Gillard's episode. Alan Griffin um, from Victoria said a very interesting thing, which is on the night, although a sympathiser with Kevin Rudd, also someone who said he wanted to throttle him, but that often comes together. Um, Most of them, yeah. Like and throttle, throttle and like. Um, Griffin said that on the night he had told the, the plotters, if you like, the conspirators, that he would give his vote to Gillard. Um, but with no great enthusiasm, what he wanted to do was that night was deliver a decisive result. And so many people said that to us. I'll come back to that. But Griffin said, but by the next morning, he wasn't sure whether he would have 
voted for Gillard. By the mm. next morning, he already, the crazy wild night had begun to dissipate and a number of people had already begun to reconsider that this might just be a step too far. And because there was no vote, of course, it was never tested. Now, I'm not saying that the numbers hadn't gone to Gillard because they had, but the idea of what would have happened if it had followed anything mm. like a normal course, I think we won't know, which just goes back to the madness of the of night. that night. And the way that it, it, it was really sort of forced externally upon the party. So, I mean, I, we had heard about it. I was at, with the Sydney Morning Herald then and we were ringing around mm. thinking, should we put something on the net, should we not? And I kept ringing cabinet ministers who said, don't be ridiculous. And I thought, well, if X doesn't know, Surely it can't be happening, you know. They're a senior factional player, minister. And then it, the ABC actually went mm. to air with it. And that almost forced the hand mm. of Julie Gillard and Kevin Rudd, who were by this stage in a meeting, right? I mean, it was like the 24-hour media cycle yeah. was used against Kevin Rudd, who'd been the great sort of... Um, user of it user himself. Of it, yeah. So that, I think the whole... The whole um, movement of that night. We'd had this original idea when we made the series of using the, um, the blueprints of Parliament House because the way that Parliament House turned in on itself, particularly the Labour Party, turned its back on you, turned its back on us and sort of ate itself. And we had this sense of them being trapped inside this chamber, which was language that a lot of people which used. they kind of were. They were. Yeah. And if they'd opened the curtains for a minute, it's possible that everything could have gone very differently. And you know, I think in particular, this is the question that goes to Julia Gillard, obviously much more than Kevin Rudd, what his, his actions come later. But for Julia Gillard, that moment could have passed. And yep. there is one moment. Now, Gillard uh, creates a very firm narrative around her decision. As I said, it's mm. firmed up since she began talking about it. But there's one little moment where she allows the possibility of the sliding doors of if I hadn't done it, if I hadn't taken that if moment... If I'd waited. If I'd waited. And you just see this little glimmer, which must occur to her, of course... A glimmer privately, of doubt. A glimmer of doubt. Just allowing the possibility that goes against the narrative that she's created, which was there was no alternative reality. But in her mind, she, just for one moment, she allows the alternative but reality. A lot of that narrative, when you really subject it to scrutiny, doesn't make entire doesn't, sense. She no. says it was because of his mental state. But really, if you thought the Prime Minister was incapable of being a Prime Minister, you'd have done something about it. The polling, Labor was ahead in the mm. polls. Well, in beautifully, 51-49, the opposite of where Malcolm it, Turnbull is tonight. I mean, <laughs> exactly. Um, and there was, there was things going on. You know, Bruce Hawker had moved into Rudd's mm. office. There was a whole review of government going on that Terry Moran had set up in PMNC. So there had been an acknowledgement that things were kind of chaotic. I mean, mm. no-one disputes that they were mm. chaotic. Mm. But it had been... Um, acknowledged. So, did the justif did her justifications ring true to you? No, no. The, the the most hollow moments are around, particularly the the capacity questions. Now, this was interesting because um, Gillard, I think, first talked. To, well, to my knowledge, I may be wrong, but Gillard had certainly talked to Paul Kelly um, about her view, sitting with Kevin Rudd in Kirribilli on a summer's day in January 2010. They're having tea. They're discussing the year ahead, and. Gillard says that she thought that Kevin Rudd looked like he wasn't coping. Now, she said that to Paul Kelly, and I thought when it came to the interview that she would backtrack. And I was quite concerned because it was an important point that she'd made. I thought it was a, a, a 
really close to being a ludicrous point to suggest that she thought that he was actually not able to cope as Prime Minister, but I thought that she wouldn't say it. And I had a plan ready if plan she B. didn't say it. I had plan B. I was, I was ready with a separate set of questions if she tried to withdraw. She didn't. She went further. She repeated the line about coping seven times in our interview. So this becomes her narrative. I have to do it because he's not coping. Yeah. Um, but she goes further. She, she effectively describes... Not effectively. She describes him as having had a breakdown. Mm. Now... That the idea that day that he was not didn't have the capacity to perform his role is such a serious statement. The idea that you could think that, not tell anyone, not regard it in some way as a threat to threat to our security or just the proper functioning of government is is quite the point. Um, but she's sticking to that point. And the thing about it is that it once she starts building it up and she actually lays the groundwork for that point before Copenhagen by saying, by emphasising Kevin Rudd's emotional connection to Copenhagen. Yeah. And therefore, when Copenhagen fails, what a surprise, he has an emotional response. Now, she's not talking about disappointment, which is natural, but something that puts him into the grip of a breakdown. And in fact, that series of statements from her secured Chris Bowen's um, involvement in the series, because Chris Bowen, by this stage, if you remember, Tony Abbott's government was surprisingly faltering and Labour suddenly thought, well, we're not going to be in opposition for a thousand years as we thought we would. We might actually get back into government one day, so we don't want to take part in this horrible series. And I went to see Chris Bowen at the CPO to beg and plead and wheedle <laughs> and do all those things that we do. And it was, in fact, Gillard's description of Kevin Rudd losing his marbles that made Chris Bowen say... I have to get on the record and correct that. And just to finish on her justifications, there's also the justification that the trigger event was Rudd's chief of staff sounding out the caucus about leadership rumblings, which also I found kind of strange at the time because everybody in the party knew that there were leadership rumblings. And in that event, it's the chief of staff's job to mm. sound out the party about them. So I couldn't really work out why that became such a seminal moment that forced her hand either. Really. Now this, again, this is another of those um, uh, certainties, uncertainties, puzzles and truths. That particular article is quite interesting because when you go, again, when you go back and read it, it actually took me by surprise. So Gillard and her supporters made a huge deal of this article. She burst into tears. She cried with John Faulkner. Um, it had a huge effect on her. Some members of her staff describe her being very upset about it. She was also as you know, a very close friend of Alistair Jordan, the Chief of Staff. So she could simply have rung Alistair Jordan and said, did you do what is described in the article? And the curious thing about the article is it doesn't just say that Alistair Jordan was doing what a Chief of Staff does and you know, check on sentiment in the party. It actually said he canvassed support in Cabinet. Now, Alistair Jordan wouldn't canvass support no. in Cabinet. So the article itself made a fairly outlandish claim, really, and was quite easily discounted. So we went back and we asked every member of Cabinet whether or not they had been sounded out by Alistair Jordan. Two of them didn't reply. Faulkner said nobody was called, and all the others said it didn't happen. And I think we spoke to half of caucus. Nobody had received the calls as described in the article. Yes, there had been conversations about how Kevin Rudd was travelling, but not the ones described so in the article. So it's an artifice. So it's an, I, I think you come to the conclusion that it's an artifice. Now, whether or not her tears were an artifice, I don't know. But the article 
seems to be, at the very least, a phony trigger. And as Anthony Albanese said, you don't choose to launch a coup against a sitting prime minister because an article says the chief of staff is checking on his no. boss's popularity. The artifice, I think, began at that moment and continued rolling into the day. So to backtrack just a little bit, another very contested event was the uh, decision to shelve the emissions trading scheme. And obviously the accounts of that are incredibly contested, mm. uh, incredibly... Uh, I mean, you've, nobody's ever really gotten to the bottom mm. of that. But it was the point where uh, the public's faith in yes. Rudd uh, really snapped. Did you reach any conclusions about that event? Yes, I'm not, and this is, the, this is the seminal moment. And you, you probably, most of you know that the person who wrote the article about the seminal moment that caused the seminal moment is sitting here. It's why Lenore <laughs> is the perfect person for, for me to be having this conversation with because this is the moment. And they all recognised it as the moment. Lenore got, and this wasn't a leak, this wasn't one of those cheap leaks that comes off the back of a truck into your lap and makes you look like a hero with a bucket full of awards. I know that Lenore got this story, not that she would tell me, but through a very long period of um, closely following this particular subject area, so she knew how to talk. This wasn't a leak, I think I'm right in saying, a dump, which is a kind of cheap form of journalism. Anyway, it, it's OK from time to time. <laughs> it's, not, it's not what Lenore does. We don't does. say no. We don't say no, but this, this was something else. But the... Uh, so one of the lovely things that happened in the series was that we... we uh, you know, imagine telling the story about... Um, changing your policy on the CPRS. I'd just like you to visualise that and turn it into a piece of Netflix drama with some great star playing Kevin Rudd. It doesn't really lend itself to high drama. But by a miracle, one day we're sitting, uh, one day we're sitting in our office watching these thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of um, archive, looking for little shots here and there that tell the story. And we find this shot of Kevin Rudd and Andrew Charlton, his economics advisor, sitting in the garden at Parliament House. We look at the date, and it's the date that at least one of the key meetings that led to the decision on the CPRS was made, the decision to take the effects of the CPRS out of the budget that year. So this is actually a live piece of history there in the garden. And Andrew Charlton had done his interview and we begged him to come back to narrate the story because there's no sound on the, um, the pictures, the camera was too far away. And the camera, the, the, the uh, Rudd and Charlton are sitting in the garden and all these press gallery journalists... They walk up and They walk up him. and it's Charlton amazing. turns over his piece of paper and they have a little chat and they walk away and then they turn it back again. It and was astonishing. It's astonishing and they're having one of the most important conversations of the Rudd government and there it is on camera. Now, what Charlton told us about that meeting, which did take our knowledge a little way down the track, which is that they were coming... Obviously, there'd been a lot of conversations already... The decision, a decision at least, had been taken that day about the budget, and he and Rudd were coming to their final conclusion about their policy that was going to explain why the CPRS needed to be postponed, but they were going to have a new policy, obviously renewables included, Lenore could do a whole session on this, they were going to have a policy, they were going to have a narrative that at least gave them a way of explaining that this wasn't just a dump and run from an unpopular policy, which in some ways it just was. But they had it worked out, but then this, they, Kevin Rudd went back into the meeting, and this is a point where I, am, I know Kevin Rudd isn't telling the truth. Because he says he, it was a difficult week for him. He'd just been finishing the health and hospitals reform package. The mining tax debacle was underway. And here they were. This, and this is an extraordinary thing, I think, about government, that these three things were happening at the same time. So he goes in, and the decision is taken. And he wants to say 
that Wayne Swan and Julia Gillard forced him to make mm. the decision, which is a which is a which talk is what about, he effectively does say, yes. which, he do which is ludicrous in itself. Mm. If he'd wanted to stick with it, of course he could have stuck with it. And honest brokers like Ken Henry make that very clear. But he he said that he wasn't ready to make a decision, whereas Andrew Charlton, who is his staffer, who is loyal, who is without rancor and just tells the story in a very straight way, says we'd reached a decision and this was to be the new policy and the new narrative. Rudd maintains he hadn't reached a decision, there was plenty of time before the budget, which wasn't true, and that at that moment, Swan and um, Gillard forced him into a corner. And when he, t this is when I know that Rudd is getting into a difficult area. His language becomes more verbose, more prolix, more subordinate clauses. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and you can't follow. And where's the verb gone? And I think my microphone's falling off my back. There it is. So you learn to distrust Rudd the more complex his language becomes. And he comes out with this great speech about the government was about to fall. The whole unity of the government was at stake. And at that moment, Julia Gillard says, rubbish. And I believe her. So, so what are those moments where maybe we might not entirely think uh, Rudd's accounts are the whole truth? Mm. The bits where he is talking about the leaks in the 2010 campaign, the bits where he talks about how he waited quite passively mm, for the leadership nothing. to come back to him did nothing. Not even Bruce Hawker buys that one. No, no. So the thing about Kevin Rudd is that he is one of the most uh, skilled media operators we'll ever see. Now, sometimes in government, when, as I said, when he, when he was under pressure, some of those skills went away, as we saw with Gillard, as we've seen with Malcolm Turnbull. The pressures of office do, of office do have an effect on people's ability to communicate. But nonetheless, he is an extremely skillful performer. And one of the things he does very well is to tell a story, to, to deny an obvious truth and keep denying it and keep denying it until the person gives up. And he has an immense staying power. And in those areas, in relation to the leaks, mm. He will just keep saying that it, it wasn't him. He, he's perfectly happy to say that um, the information got to Laurie Oakes about the night of the big meeting in, in the office, because for him, that meeting is very important. He wants people to know that Julia Gillard betrayed him, that she agreed to give him more time, they had done a deal, and then she went out, spoke to Mark Arbib, and it was all off. Now, that's crucial for him, the fact that, as he admits, the dogs of war had already been let slip. There was no, as Gillard said, actually, with a beautiful moment of candor, the genie was out of the bottle. That even if she'd wanted to go back to her office and get on with being deputy, mm. it was too late. Mm -hmm. um, it's, in, in relation to the leaks, it's important for Rudd that that scene is understood as a betrayal of him by Gillard. So he doesn't mind acknowledging that, yes, he gave, may have given that to Laurie Oakes, but when it comes but to beyond the- beyond that. Beyond that, and I, he will take that to his grave. Mm. And when it comes to his narrative about the way he took back power, again, you know, out of the mouths of babes, children, and junior staffers, one, his young staffer, Patrick Gorman, we asked him the question about when Rudd's comeback began. And he said, mm, was it January the 3rd or the 4th? And just laid out this, well, we started thinking around that time that it was, you know, it probably wasn't going to work, this government, and that we might need to stop looking for a job with the UN and actually start doing something about it. And Rudd said, no, 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 I never wanted to take that job back. It just, I said to my colleagues, if yeah. you come to me and draft me, I'll, I'll do it, otherwise I'm not doing it. And what he does is he just keeps saying it. He keeps saying it, and every answer is the same. We got to the point where our researcher, who was sitting in the interview, 
um, in the one section of the Rudd interview, the marathon Rudd interviews, and we stopped to change the card in the camera, and she came up to me and she said, I can't stand it anymore. He just keeps giving the same answer over and over and over and over again. I said, yes, that's why he's so good. He's not giving me anything I can use except this is my narrative, this is what I did, he Take doesn't deviate. It. So the light and shade for him then has to come from Patrick yeah. Gorman and Bruce yeah. Walker and everybody else. So at the risk of being a journalist talking to a journalist mm. about journalists, they <laughs> both do refer unflatteringly to mm. the role of the media in this saga. And, you know, I certainly think there are legitimate criticisms that can be made there. But did you reach any conclusions about the way the media handled this whole period and the role of the media? It was one of the things that exercised both of them. And, and getting them both to cooperate fully in the series meant getting over that very significant obstacle. Um, now, if I'd been a press gallery journalist, I think it would have been impossible. They, they had, both of them, had an animus not to everybody in the press gallery, but to the way the press mm. gallery had operated. And I think that by 2013, by 2012, 2013, there is no question that the press gallery, elements of the press gallery had become really completely partisan and that they were acting in a way, what Tony Abbott said I think is not entirely wrong. I think him saying it on the day that he was deposed was probably not the moment to say it, but the wielding of the assassin's knife, really it, there is some sense to this that you can see very clearly the way articles were planted, of course by both sides. And this, for this I thank the candor of people like Alan Griffin um, and, and McTurnan and a number of other people who were quite in a way, they were, spoke quite openly about the way they would talk to journalists. But I think there's a difference between, both Gillard and Rudd supporters admitted that they had used the media. They both said to correct the positions put out by the other side, rather than to start putting out those positions. But you know, I don't know who came first, chicken or egg, Gillard or Rudd, I have no idea. But there's something, there's a there's an important difference between talking to a journalist to try and make a case, which, which politicians will do all the time, ringing someone up with, as I was describing before, here's, an, here's a story, use this. And I think there is no question that some of our colleagues became very close to one side or the other and were favourable and friendly. Mm. And by the time we came to meet Gillard for the very first time, she walked into our meeting at the Hilton Hotel in Sydney, and I'd never met her, only seen her from a distance before, and expected... Uh, to see some of her warmth, and she was hostile. I was very surprised. It's, it's, um, Rudd operates in a completely different way. He was angry, but he, he, he used, tends to use warmth and charm more. Gillard was hostile, and she was bristling about the media, and she said, really, before she would even have any discussion about what we might cover, she said, how are you going to deal with the media? Because this is a story about the media. You cannot make this series if you don't identify and analyze the errors and the partisanship of the media. She said it on the first meeting, and on the very last day, we traveled down the um, props elevator in, um, in the ABC, and I made a terrible mistake. Oh, so sorry. Oh, that was loud, wasn't it? <laughs> I'll just tell you what I did, because sometimes when things are very tense, you know, it's good to crack a bad joke. And <laughs> so we're traveling down in this very long, very big lift. Her and her bag-carrying amanuensis is always checking on the time and telling me that I'm taking too long. And I was travelling with my young producer, Justin Stevens, and I told Gillard that he did a brilliant impersonation of her. <laughs> which I thought was really funny, and that he would do it, and that we would all laugh, and we'd leave on good terms. 
Not so much. <laughs> so we're standing in the lift and Justin is bright red. Because suddenly what I've done is I've accidentally broken the, the sort of um, the image. And here we are. I've given the impression that we're sitting around the office giggling at impersonations of her, which well, we did, actually, because Justin could impersonate <laughs> not just her. Justin can impersonate everybody. Mm. He does a brilliant Rudd. He does a fantastic Wayne Swan. But you don't tell people. It's just our way of cooling off. We were working very, very hard. So we're, we spend, we then have to go down many, many floors in the lift. <laughs> Anyway, just before she left, the car's waiting and the bag carrier's glaring at me and I'm feeling such a goose. And she says, the media, how are you going with your analysis of the media? And I thought, mm, okay. This, the thing is, it's, it. a, it's yeah. a separate, in a way, it's a separate, yeah. you could make a whole separate series. Probably you could. A couple of last questions before we uh, throw it open to the audience. You were quite critical of Bill Shorten's decision mm. not to participate. But if you were his media advisor, what would you advise him to do? I mean, the guy backed both challenges. What's he going to say about that? You'd look, tell him to run a mile, wouldn't you, if you were his advisor? All right, I finally... Look, I've been complaining about this ever since Shorten said no. We started at a restaurant in Canberra with a, a screen that separated us from a curious public, which I decided had become the perfect metaphor for Bill Shorten's desire to have nothing to do with this series. Forever the screen protecting him from a curious public. Yes, of course, if I were his media advisor, which I would never be, because I don't believe in crossing over um, to <laughs> the you know, poachers and gamekeepers, um, I would tell him not to be in it. But the journalist in me said, look, he's never explained what happened, and I think he didn't want to have any of those explanations available as archive for time immemorial. But he wrote us a letter at the very end, and this, I, I actually looked at this again today and realised I'd missed something when he sent it. So we kept, we kept going back and saying, come on, you have to, the public deserves it. Uh, the public has this, you know, had this extraordinary connection with Labour in 07. There was an enormous reigniting of political interest in 07, and, and then all these events happened and that interest was kind of dashed. So you have an obligation to explain it. And Bill Shorten wrote us a letter saying, I was criticised for not explaining why I voted for Gillard in 2010. I didn't make the same mistake in 2013, and therefore, there's no place for therefore in this sentence, therefore I'm very focused on the battles of the future, not the past. And I looked at that sentence again, and apart from the stray therefore that doesn't belong or do anything at all in that <laughs> sentence, I thought, hang on a minute, Bill, Mr Shorten, sir, the issue is not why you voted for Gillard, it's what you were doing in that office in, on the afternoon of the leadership mm. challenge, plotting how the rest of the day was going to be. It's your decision to get involved in unseating Kevin Rudd. It's got nothing to do with you voting for Gillard. That was the final act that, in fact, you didn't have to do because there was no ballot. So even when trying to write a letter about explaining why he's focused, therefore, on the battles of the future, he's still not even talking about the fact that he was a central player. Yeah. And if you remember, I know we're supposed to move on, but the, um, remember those pictures of him in the Vietnamese restaurant in Kingston? Kingston. Mm. And he went to great lengths to explain that he was, in fact, on the, he wasn't on the phone counting numbers or anything like that. He was talking to his um, child's child school teacher. Now, I'm sure he was talking to his child's school teacher, but Gillard's very close friend and staffer said that, in fact, Shorten was also on the phone to him all night. Um, a series of conversations. Is she, what's going on, what's going on? Is she still in with him? Is she, you've got to get him out, you've got to get him out. And that by the end of those calls, he was becoming increasingly desperate because as Gillard identified earlier in the day, if the, if the challenge didn't go ahead, they were all losing their jobs and their careers were in serious jeopardy. And can I swear at this event? 
at the end of the day, Jerry Kitchener said, you've got to get her the fuck out of there or we're all going to be destroyed. Yeah. So, and, you know, Jerry Kitchener, you know, I, I said to Bill Shorten, you can choose to tell the story of that night or I'm going to have other people tell it who spoke to you. In the end, we have to rely on what the yep. others said. Yep. So, yes, of course. Of course, you'd advise him not to take part. And one of the things, just this is my last question, one of the things I really liked about this book, I liked the series, but I guess it says something about me as a print journalist, I kind of like the book better, because you can put in the nuance mm. and the whys and wherefores and the second thoughts and all that sort of stuff, but you also put into it a whole lot of considerations you had about the making of the mm. series and how you go about it and how you liked them and how you, your techniques as an interview. You don't think you've crueled your pitch for, the, for your next project, do you? I, I, I was wondering about that because somebody, somebody um, started talking to me about um, Janet Malcolm's description of how journalists make people their friends and betray them and wasn't that exactly what I sort of had admitted to doing. And I, no, I, I hope I haven't crueled my pitch, but I might have to make a gardening there series first. There might be a first. bit wise. There might be a bit wise. But look, the, the, um, all, all I can say is that at least I say this much, I don't try to be their friends. But as you know, when you're having we a very... You can't be their friends. You really. can't be their friends. It just, the problem is because it's an approximation of friendship. It feels sometimes like a friendship. And the great danger, of course, is that the line you're not supposed to cross is only visible when it's behind you, that you have to be very careful. And mm. these are relationships that go for months and the interviews go for hours. So finding a way to be both enticing and persuasive but completely detached is quite the contortion. But I hope I haven't given away all my secrets. Okay. Do, does anyone in the audience have a question? There are microphones on either side, I think. Hello. Hi. Um, I'm, hello. Um, thank you so much. I'm just wondering if you could say something about, if you could say something about the difference between Malcolm Turnbull and Julia Gillard. It just surprises me as someone who, when you say the audience takes sides, I, I, I'm a really pro-Gillard person. And I wonder what the difference is. And I, I'm not sure it can be reduced to the sex of the person. I'm, no. I'm astounded that Australians are so vehement against Julia Gillard, but not Malcolm Turnbull, for pretty much doing the same thing. And it's not really the, something that's not happened before. It's happened at least six times, seven if you include Menzies. Well, let let, I'll just say this. So, that first of all, that there are some, there are a few qualitative dif differences that are important with Turnbull, and I think we are seeing some of that uh, sense of people's um, when you when you take when you take power the wrong side of an election, you, I think you make life very difficult for yourself and that's why this instability is so bad for politics and that's the position that Malcolm Turnbull is in and I think there's a lot of frustration with him and it is in part related to that. There was a difference. Um, the Liberal Party challenge, there was a warning. So although it was not completely different, that is an important difference, that at least it gave the Australian public a period in which to begin to understand that the Liberal Party was cracking. Whereas in the case of Gillard, what happened is, it, of course, it happened overnight. And in that period immediately afterwards, so you've got someone coming in to take power who then decides not to enunciate the reasons 
for taking power, just that strange phrase, a good government has lost his way, which, by the way, Jenny Macklin the night before told Julia Gillard, don't use it, it's silly and it doesn't make sense. They went ahead and used it, and it was an empty phrase, and her speechwriter beautifully describes... Kind of like continuity and change. <laughs> continuity, there you go. So uh, he, he describes their failure to capture that moment, and if you don't identify the reasons, what people think is that it's about ambition, and then Rudd obviously poured some, some nectar into that sense of, of it being about her and ambition, and then the concoction kind of bubbled up. There is a difference, so at least in this case, the public, I think, had some time to think about why Malcolm Turnbull thought that he should do it. The problem now is we have very high expectations on Malcolm therefore delivering because it was a challenge and not an election victory. And isn't also, I, I completely agree with that, but I think there's also the difference that the public had kind of given up on Tony Abbott, uh, had become completely fed up with his style of governing as was shown in most of the opinion polls. The public hadn't given up on Kevin Rudd at the point of um, him being overthrown. His party could see all the problems. But they didn't tell us all about them until after the event. So there was, I think that was also a, a big difference. Thank you both. Hi, I just wanted to say thank you very much for giving a bit of an insight into the media side of things in uh, the political arena. Um, I just was curious on your take of whether there's a little bit of Wizard of Oz, don't be, look behind the curtain, happening in politics now, that they've focused very much on themselves, it's an inward focus on staying in, in, in politics and staying in government, rather than focusing on outward focus of what's happening for Australians and how do we make this a better place. And I love um, when you're talking on the you know, 7.30 report and saying, tell us about your policy. <laughs> this is, I think this is the problem with leadership challenges and this is why they've got to figure this out, that it gives all of us the impression that it's their business and not ours. And it's the one thing that Anthony Albanese understood. It's why he comes out of this story so well, which is he was the one who was still looking at the voters. Uh, and the others were stuck inside the echo chamber. Now, there may be, not, I'm not talking about the reasons for or against Malcolm Turnbull's decision, but it still gives you the impression that it's a decision for him. And until we know that it's not, that it's a decision for us, that's the problem. We feel like they're doing politics for themselves and not for us. And I think that's starting to be a very strong theme at the moment. Yeah, um, as I'm sure all of us did, we re really, I really enjoyed the killing season. Um, yes, you know, when, when Rudd was deposed, what the hell's going on? But then very, then starting to hear, well, thanks to Radio National especially at the time, ah, there was a whole lot of this stuff going on. And like, I'm sure that a lot of us and a lot of the Australian population are wondering who are these people and and more especially, a key kind of question is uh, for me anyway was how does how do these two people treat others? You know, and do they? You know, because it, it seemed really important to me that they are people who do respect their staff members, who who do that's you know um, that's crucial really. That's a lot of their credibility comes comes down to that. Don't you think it's it's one of the things that's so difficult is to work out 
the, the truth of those questions. This, this comes back to what I was saying before about certainty. There's no, you know, there's no question that Gillard was very popular with her staff. Actually, so was Kevin Rudd, and that's not something that people want to hear. They want to hear that everybody hated him. Now, he did alienate people. It's part of the way that he works. He's got a, you know, he's got a very strange diary style. There, there was frustration, but it's not as simple as the picture that was described, and which is why we w went to such an enormous effort to find honest brokers to give a proper account of his behaviour. Interestingly, Terry Moran, who you were talking about, was at that time through PNC looking at ways of improving the way the government managed, said there were plenty of other cabinet members in the Rudd government far worse than Kevin Rudd. He wasn't the worst by a long chalk. And that's why we went to Ken Henry as the honest broker, who was able to describe what was wrong with the government, but without rancor. So I, I, I think the way people treat their staff is incredibly important. Yeah, I, I think and you're whether, absolutely you know, right. Dignity of people. Yes. But, you know, for me, watching the killing season and talking to my parents and, you know, they, you know, they were supporting Rudd. Mm. And, and I said, oh, you know, a lot of us have sympathy with trying to deal with a bully. Mm. You know, mm. and you're right. What what parts of the story are you not hearing? But um, to me, it seemed as the killing season unfolded, um, Kevin himself was was not doing a good job for himself. It seemed to me that he was he really came out badly. Well, I think that. that's that's in, in a way that's the gift of the camera. That um, not that he should come out badly, but that some truths emerge. Again, politicians are very good in an arena, in a studio. They can win a 10-minute battle. They can get into combat. But over eight hours or 10 hours, something else happens. And what the camera does is move over the face, moves over what you say, and it finds truths, even though you don't know that's what it's doing. And that's one of the reasons why television, in the first instance, is a good way of telling these stories. Absolutely. And then the books come after. Thank you. Hello again, Sarah. Hi. I guess with uh, Kim Beasley here tomorrow night, it's probably appropriate that I ah, ask the question. Yes. <laughs> Uh, as you know, I think the answer to your mystery, to your dilemma, uh, lies in the cruel arithmetic of the Beasley caucus. And the answer to the question, how was it that Kevin Rudd, with just 10 or 12 votes in that caucus, managed to become leader of the Labor Party and a few months later, Prime Minister? And I think there's a question hidden behind that that's the real key. And that's how was it that Julia Gillard persuaded her 42 votes, all of whom loathe Kevin Rudd with a passion, to vote for him? To there's be there's certainty for you. <laughs> 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 He's got it. Look, the thing about that decision is it's, it is one of the, we couldn't linger on it, but it is one of the most fascinating parts of that period of history and the fact of these two people coming together. And I love the idea of both Rudd and Gillard going off to see Mark Arbib, the secretary of the New South Wales Labor Party, for his support. Arbib decided to go with Kevin Rudd, so Rudd ends up being on top, but they can't get there, as you say, as you point out through the maths, neither of them can get there by themselves. They can only get there together. So here we have the beginning of this imperfect marriage. Brokered by Kim Carr. Brokered by Kim Carr, no less. That's right, in a, you know, in a house, in, a, in an apartment in Canberra. The, these are the cruel maths of caucus, and the thing that we should never forget is that politicians do numbers. They get numbers. They're counting numbers in their sleep all the time. And you can get some very strange results from numbers, but they know how it works. Mm. But I think there's some themes. Yes, I think you're right about the numbers and the cruel maths in relation to Kim Beasley. 
But that really goes back to the themes of that time, whether or not Kim Beasley was going to beat John Howard, those people who thought he wasn't, in the same way that members of the Labour caucus, some of them thought that Labour was going to lose in 2010. I think more think they were going to win. It's the same thing in 2007. A whole load of professional experts, some of them thought Beasley wasn't going to win, others thought Kevin Rudd was a much more certain choice. And I think that's probably the question for the time, however cruel the, the mathematics turns out to be. I think the way she persuaded them was she said to them, it's not our time, us of the left, but it will be our time in about two years, and this is how we're going to do it. I will be Deputy Prime Minister. Kevin, Kevin747, will be overseas a lot. I will be Acting Prime Minister. I will have the opportunity to put to bed all those ridiculous things that people say. I can't be Prime Minister because I'm a woman. I can't be Prime Minister because I'm not married. I can't be Prime Minister because I don't have children, because I don't have fruit in my fruit basket. <laughs> I can't be Prime Minister because I'm an atheist. And of course, as Kevin Rudd said from the right, you can't be Prime Minister because you're from the left. Mm. I will prove all of that wrong. And as soon as I've established, not only can I be Prime Minister, but I can do the job bloody well, the next time Kevin stumbles, I will take him down. I think somebody I know very close to me would say I'll take that as a comment. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a question over here? That's my son I'm laughing at. Good evening. Thank you very much. My question is, is there a reason that Lindsay Tanner didn't have a more prominent role? Yes. Now, Lindsay, people assumed uh, quite reasonably, I think, that Lindsay Tanner hadn't given us an, an interview. He was, a, he was a reluctant starter, but he agreed to give an interview. But I don't know if you remember, but Lindsay Tanner had written a book complaining about the media, the dumbing down of the media, which is, you know, he had some justification for saying that. We, we live with it all the time ourselves and fight it in our own corner. There's something about Lindsay's delivery, and it was a, certainly a mistake of mine. You can't make a thousand choices about what you include and what you don't include without making mistakes, and I should have found a way to include Lindsay, but it just means I get to use more of him in the book. And you know, one of my favorite things of, of Lindsay Tanner is his discussion about truth and how hard it is to find absolute truth in politics. In fact, that all truth in politics is conditional. So Lindsay Tanner was interviewed. He gave um, a very thoughtful interview, but he was absolutely determined that he wasn't going to be um, dramatic in the way that he gave his answers. And on screen, in the course of a killing season drama, it just didn't seem to fit. But that was a mistake, and I say sorry to Lindsay Tanner. And just in conclusion, I'd like to say what well, I think one of the great strengths of the, of the series and of the book was Sarah's determination to only use on-record interviews. Mm. And we talked a little about the role of the media, and I think one of the things that went wrong with the press gallery, some of the press gallery reporting of this period was an over-reliance on unnamed sources. I mean, sometimes we have to use them, but not all the time. So I, I think one of the great strengths of your project was that you had people on record. And I know that's one of the reasons why it came out so fabulously. I think that it's very important, and I think as readers and viewers, I think you have to demand it because it's, you know, some, as Lenore says, there are moments in particular when we're talking about that ETS story where it's absolutely vital but it's not vital most of the time. And you couldn't tell a story as important to the public as this and rely on people whose faces you couldn't see. And that's what we said to everybody. This story will be shaped. So the actual kind of story that 
we tell about the Labour Party here will be determined by those people who show up. So if you want to shape the narrative, there's no point giving me a set of documents or trying to tell me something rude about someone behind their back. You have to sit in that chair and say it where your colleagues can test it and check the veracity of what you're saying. And then you know pretty much, with a few exceptions, that you're getting a little bit closer to the truth. Well, thanks. Well, look, one day um, early in the English summer of 2010, I was attending a conference on Patrick White at the University of London, where I was working back then. In fact, as, as I noticed in the good weekend, the same college as I think Sarah was a graduate of, King's. And now David Marr was sitting in the audience um, that morning, and he seemed a little distracted by his mobile phone. <laughs> Every few minutes, he'd disappear outside before returning to whatever learned discussion was in progress about Voss and the tree of man and a fringe of leaves. Um, it, it was a valiant effort, I guess, by um, White's biographer and one of Australia's leading political journalists to juggle these two sides of his professional life. And I have a feeling that uh, matters in Canberra might in the end have won out. Um, at the next break, of course, uh, he had some astounding news about the events that were unfolding 12,000 miles away, as far from the charms of Bloomsbury as I think you might uh, be able to conceive. Um, the Killing Season uh, on TV was an engrossing series, and, and the book is obviously, as I, as I think you, know, you will have gathered from the discussion tonight, it was, I think, much more than just a companion um, to that series in any conventional sense. Among other things, uh, it's also an absorbing reflection on the making of that series, um, political tragics, and I suspect there are a few here tonight. Um, we'll, uh, they'll naturally love the book for its drama and for what it reveals about insider politics, but there's plenty in there too for those interested in how television is made. I now know that you can change the colour of carpet, I gather, in, in, in the appearance uh, uh, on, on film in, uh, in the TV production process. Um, as, as we've heard tonight, how to persuade politicians to speak on camera about the dark arts, um, the complexities of, of doing a high-powered interview and much else. Um, I even learned something about the influence of the design of Parliament House itself on political manoeuvring, which is one of, of many pleasant surprises uh, in this book. Um, as with the last book for which I was asked to give a vote of thanks uh, in this forum, which was Nikki Savers' um, The Road to Ruin, psychologists will also find plenty of raw material in there. Um, Kevin Rudd might have complained in his interviews with Sarah that Julia Gillard had no qualifications in psychoanalysis, um, but it's hard to miss the way that the language of psychology, um, projection, denial, those sorts of words, they permeate the efforts of the major players to make sense of what happened to them. And on the subject of um, psychological probing, uh, just in case anyone here tonight imagines that it might be a jolly thing before they die uh, to be interviewed by Sarah Ferguson, <laughs> I'd, I'd direct them to one of her exchanges with Ken Henry when she asked him why it makes him uncomfortable to talk about the mining tax. You're nasty, you are, he replies, and uh, I think he has a point. Um, <laughs> I, I, I also I thought that should also be delivered in a kind of German accent, you know, <laughs> as, a, as a psychoanalyst, but anyway. Um, I came out of this book feeling more sympathetic towards Kevin Rudd and less so towards Julia Gillard than I can recall having felt after the television series. Um, I wonder if this is an effect of the medium itself, uh, a book as against television, 
um, or, or perhaps an effect of the additional interview material and the opportunities that print um, gave, I think, um, for analysis by Sarah. Um, I'm not sure about all that. You'll be able to make up your own mind once you've picked up your own copy. Um, but I think most importantly, Sarah captures the great tra tragedy that's at the heart of this story of two human beings, um, a party and a government, and that helps to make it um, exemplary, I think, um, uh, you know, with respect to being the very best kind of contemporary political history. Um, so thank you to everyone uh, for their presence and participation here tonight. Um, we've been very privileged to listen to two of Australia's finest journalists discuss this book and the drama that forms its subject. So I invite you to thank Lenore Taylor and Sarah Ferguson for their absorbing conversation tonight, uh, and Catherine Pearce and Colin Steele and the Canberra Times and the ANU for again organising and hosting uh, such a successful event. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.